We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. We are continuing tonight with a a mini-series within a larger series, which was on the book of Leviticus and called God With Us. And then the, the smaller series within, which we're doing during the Advent season, is called Be Holy. And we're thinking about the call of God on our lives to grow in holiness as his people, in part as we await the return of the king. So during the season of Advent, we look forward to Jesus's second coming, as we anticipate again from long ago the anticipation of his first coming. But we're looking forward to Jesus coming back and making all things new. And as a a desire that we have to be ready for his coming, we want to grow in holiness. And so that's the the desire or the the design behind this time together is that we can grow together in a life of holiness. Uh, One Old Testament scholar summarized holiness in this way. In terms of daily life, to be holy means to live in full submission to the will of God for the sake of the purposes of God to belong completely to him. This is about full submission to the will of God, about a complete yielding over. So here's the question, what is the Lord's will? How do we know that? If you were to ask a new covenant believer or an old covenant believer, part of the people of God, both would point you back to the 10 commandments to say this is the place where God makes his will most clearly known. Jesus, of course, summarizes the law or those commandments in two, love God and love your neighbor. Uh, But the very first commandment, the one uh, that kicks it all off, says this. You shall have no other gods before or besides me. And this is the starting point. It's the foundation of the holy life of Israel. God has rescued and redeemed his people and by his grace and mercy. And he calls them into exclusive fidelity with him. To a relationship with him that has no other rivals, no other gods beside or before me. None, just him. And in in the words of William Wilberforce from his 1797 book, A Practical View of Christianity, he says, quote, God requires to set up his throne in the heart and to reign in it without a rival. God wants to set up his throne and have no rival in our hearts. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, when he's engaged in a temptation in the wilderness with the devil, um, he reaffirms this reality of exclusive fidelity to to God. He's offered, remember, all the kingdoms of the world and the glories that they bring in exchange for worshiping the devil. And you might remember how Jesus responds to that. He says in quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus calls for exclusive fidelity. And it's this that defines the faithful people of God throughout both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant as well, and that sets them apart. We read the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he says, flee from idolatry. That's his call in our lives. Flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, he says. So the call is to be exclusively faithful to the Lord. 
And this is the first principle. This is like the highest point of thinking about living a holy life. In the hierarchy of Israel's values, this is at the top of the list. And unsurprisingly, we find this reiterated in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, these three chapters that we're focusing on during the season of Advent. As the Lord calls his people to faithfulness, he actually reiterates and addresses again this call to exclusive fidelity to him. Admittedly, this isn't the feature subject of these three chapters. There's a lot that goes on. Probably the lead subject belongs to sexuality, to which we'll come back next week. But it is the cornerstone of Israel's life, this call to worshiping God and God alone. And so we find it here, and we've read out of chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 20. And as we look at these verses, we want to consider four things. First, the folly of idolatry, then the lure of idolatry, then the cost of idolatry, and finally, the antidote to idolatry. So let's start with the folly. And we'll look at verse 4 of chapter 19, this simple and clear prohibition that's given to God's people. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. What does it mean to turn to idols? It means to look to them for help, to lean into them, to depend upon them, to expect them to give us something that we think that we need. And to to turn to idols includes not only leaning on them for help, but then in addition, serving them. Because there's this kind of exchange that goes on. You serve the idols, you know, you serve me, and then I'll give you what you're looking for. And so we serve these idols in order to receive the promises that they make in exchange for their help. And the folly of that can be found actually in the semantic range of the Hebrew word here that's used for idol. This word does in fact point to the non-entities of pagan deities in the ancient Near Eastern world, but it also can mean just simply insignificant, vain, or worthless. So in Job, we read about the worthless physicians, or in Zechariah 11, we read about the worthless shepherds who have turned their back on the flock of God's people. The same word is used there it gets translated worthless. And it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a semantic way of representing that idols are in fact worthless. That's what they are, of no use. And it's communicated most poignantly and clearly to us in Psalm 115, where we read, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. To turn to lifeless idols for help is the height of folly because they have no power. And it's not just the folly of turning to the idols. There's also a folly and idolatry of turning away from the one true God who actually can help. Turning to idols is an act of spurning and and offending and rejecting the one true God who has power, who can rescue us, and who has, in fact, delivered us, the people of God. This is an act of high treason against the divine sovereign king, a breach of the exclusive fidelity that he requires of his people, an adulteration of our relationship, our covenant relationship with him that is likened in a relatively graphic expression in verse 5 of chapter 20 to whoring after another, after Molech, after another lover. It's this infidelity. So that's the folly, turning two things that can't help and away from the one who can Let's think about the lure, secondly, the lure of idolatry. So why do we do it? 
Because we do. We do, right? We know that we do. In fact, there's a hint in this text in verse 4 of chapter 19 that's kind of reminding Israel of the fact that this was in their recent history. So it's the word translated cast metal in verse 4. Don't make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. That word is actually used twice in Exodus 32, which is the account of their idolatry in forming a golden calf or a golden bull at Sinai. And it's as if the text here is saying, God is saying to his people, hey, don't forget, this is a part of your recent past, and I don't want you to go down this path again. They're still at Sinai where this happened. In the Institutes, Calvin observes, quote, that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And this is the reality of sin within us. But why? Why turn to false gods that can't help, that can't save, that can't rescue? As Calvin reflects on the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, he suggests that part of what drove Israel to idolatry was the desire to have a more tangible God. Moses was up on the mountain. They couldn't see him. He'd been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. They hadn't heard anything from him. And so they were getting impatient. They were tired of waiting. And they sought refuge in something more tangible, visible, right in front of them, something they could touch and see. And there is that desire in the heart of humankind and sin. So they cast this golden bowl or calf of metal that they could see and lean on. Uh, Herman Bavink, a great theologian from the 19th century, wrote this. He said, idolatry taken in its broadest sense is born of the human need for a God who is near. Something that we can touch and have as a tangible expression in front of us. And the gods who were near for ancient Israel were both false deities of their own making, like the golden calf, but also the false gods of the surrounding nations who were represented by images of wood or stone or metal, who made promises of fertility or fruitful produce from the land or protection from harm. These gods worshipped by the culture around them and in some ways, at least more tangible to them, were a snare to them. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that these pagan deities are not so much our temptation when we think about idolatry in our own lives. At least not in a literal sense. The gods who are near to us worshipped by the culture around us are those things which call for our devotion, our service, our sacrifice in exchange for the help that they promise, help for our ego, the accolades and praises of those who get ahead in what the world and the culture around us values, or a sense of peace or security or safety or of accomplishment or satisfaction. Such gods can be the good things of God's creation, spouses, children, business ventures, but when they require the ultimate allegiance of our hearts, they become snares to us, to us just as much as Molech, the Canaanite god, did to the, became a snare to Israel. In the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he writes, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. It can become an ultimate thing that demands all of us Perhaps our greatest temptation, though, to idolatry today is not maybe just the gods who are near or worshipped in the culture around us, but it is to refashion the one true God into a mold that is more like the gods around us. It's not an outright denial of God, but a refashioning of God into the one who reflects more of the spirit of the age, 
Just like Israel sought to incorporate their golden calf into a feast to the Lord in Exodus 32.5, so too are we tempted to refashion God as he has revealed himself to be, to be more palatable to our modern proclivities and tastes. And the greatest pressure right now in our culture with regard to this is in relation to sexuality, but we can find it in other areas as well. The God of the health and wealth gospel, which is so popular around the world, is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ at all. It masquerades as, this God masquerades as that, but it is really the, the God of the Bible wedded to the God of wealth and mammon and the God of health and well-being mishmashed together and portrayed as the Christian God. That's not God. That is not the God who is mighty to save, but that is a God who is an idol fashioned in the image of our deep loves and, and, and longings in this cultural moment. And God, the refashioning of the biblical God to be more in step with the spirit of the age is just plain and simple idolatry. And we are especially prone to this in our hyper-individualistic age. If there's a dimension of God with which we struggle, and we do, if we're honest, his exclusivity, perhaps, his holiness in calling us to a holy life in many different areas of our lives. Perhaps it's his wrath and his judgment, which are the flip side of his love for his creation, that his creation would flourish and know goodness and, and life in the full. We just cut it off. We just take the prerogative upon ourselves to say, you know, actually, that's not the God that I believe in. And that doesn't leave us with God. It leaves us with an idol. Both in Deuteronomy and in the book of Revelation, we are exhorted as the people of God not to add to his words or to subtract from his words. I think it's fascinating that the end of the biblical witness actually talks about this. And it's as if God is reminding us as the whole canon closes, look, don't add anything to me and don't take away. Don't, don't tweak what I have made known about myself. Rather come to worship the God as, he, God as he has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his word and wrestle with him. So the lure is strong to idolatry. Let's talk about thirdly then the cost of idolatry. Because idolatry isn't only foolish, it's actually costly as well. To worship anything other than the God of, the, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to invite diminishment and destruction. The invitation is always just the opposite, right? The false gods promise us life and flourishing. Surely if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. You'll become greater than you already are. And that's always the promise redemption, protection, fruitfulness, fulfillment, rest. These are the promises that the gods of this world hold out to us, but their promises are always spurious. We've considered in chapter 19, verse 4, the, the general prohibition against idolatry, but the specific prohibition is found in chapter 18, verse 21, which we read, which says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, we don't know much about this practice, but the worship of Molech, a Canaanite god, included the sacrifice of children, offering them to him, passing through the fire. And there's evidence of this kind of practice actually coming out of North Africa, near Carthage, as well as evidence of child sacrifice being practiced in what we call modern-day Jordan, in the territory of the ancient world, the Ammonites, around the time of Israel's conquest of Canaan, and the Ammonites were told in 1 Kings chapter 11 
the God of the Ammonites is identified as Molech. And here's the point. The worship of false gods cost, in this case, in this, ex in this example with Molech, one's own children. The worship of Molech illustrates in a horrendous way the cost of all false worship. It destroys life. It destroys what is most valuable to us. The end of the section that we quoted earlier, that I quoted earlier in Psalm 115 says this, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. To worship an idol, to trust an idol, to turn to idols is to become like them. It is to become more and more lifeless, not life-filled. Idols cannot speak, see, hear, smell, feel, or walk. And to become like an idol is to become less and less human. It is to lose our life. An older friend of mine uh, spent most of his career working with top-level CEOs across the world. And uh, he wrote this to me in an email many years ago. He said, the research shows that those who are first by common standards are often physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually bankrupt. So much of humanity that God has bestowed on those striving for the golden ring of success is sacrificed at the altar of achievement that there is very little of it left at the end of a career. Of course, that's not always the case. There are some wonderful counterexamples to that of those who've walked faithfully in worship of the one true God and found what the world would describe as things, places of success, but they haven't served that. And this is often, this was this man's experience of being on the inside of that culture over and over and over again, seeing the cost that idolatry took out on the lives of those who bowed down to what he called the golden ring of success. Now, we would never, those of us who have children, we would never seek to sacrifice our children to a false deity in a barbaric act of betrayal. Though I think I would be remiss not to point out that modern-day abortion could in some ways be likened to this kind of costly devotion to a false god. But those of us who have kids could never imagine offering our children to the fires of Molech. And yet, I'm going to ask a, an honest question. Are we teaching them to worship the golden ring of success? Above, perhaps, or at least alongside the worship of the one true God? Consider how much more energy, money, effort, and intentionality we may put into the academic or athletic success of our children relative to the energy that we put into their spiritual formation. It might appear less barbaric, far more culturally acceptable, but it might not be entirely different to what we read about here in Leviticus. False gods devour and destroy genuine life in his well-known commencement address to Kenyon College in Ohio in 2005, the great novelist David Foster Wallace, who was committed suicide a couple years later after the speech, he argued, you know, we all as human beings have to worship. He said, we don't have a choice. It's just what it means to be human. And he's not a Christian, but he, he's very insightful into, into uh, the human condition. And then he says, you know, the compelling reason, and we get to choose what we worship, and he says, the compelling reason to worship a god or a spiritual type thing, and he says, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother, mother goddess or the four noble truths, 
or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he continues, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Wallace is partially right. Because I would argue that to worship the wicked mother goddess or four noble truths or an inviolable set of ethical principles will eat you alive as well. The only worship that will deepen our life is the worship of the one true God. Worship of an idol is costly and the cost is always life. And that does bear itself out in the inherent consequences of idolatry as they work themselves out in our own lives. But it also is the result and this is a bit challenging for us, but it's a result of the just punishment upon idolatry at the hand of the Lord and his people. In the context of ancient Israel, to sit loose on the Lord's covenant, an illicit worship of Molech committing, was committing an act of treason against the Lord was to do exactly that. And it was a serious morally defiling offense. To sit loose on the Lord's covenant was a serious matter. And this particular idolatry of worshiping Molech involved a violation, of course, of the first commandment, but also a violation of the sixth commandment, that you shall not murder, because innocent lives were taken in these actions. It also profaned the name of the Lord, which is a violation of the third commandment, and it defiled the sanctuary. We read that in verse 3 of chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 2, and if you've got your Bible open, let's look at this together. The Lord says, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And that punishment administered by the people was the expression of, of God's judgment in verse 3. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. And here we find that expression cut off that we've seen before in the book of Leviticus, often a consequence of egregious acts of rebellion. And we saw it, though, in relation to the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, when the scapegoat was sent off into a land that was cut off, translated in the ESV, the, the wilderness. But literally, the land that was cut off. And this means away from the Lord, away from the very presence of life and to the realm of death. Now, we, of course, as we engage this, Leviticus has given us many gifts of surprise and shock. And here, I think, is another one that we wrestle with when we read something like this. It's sobering, isn't it? And confusing, perhaps, in some ways. And I, and I want to contextualize this, this severe punishment in two ways. First, to contextualize us, and then to contextualize ancient Israel. So, first, to contextualize us, let's remember, and I hope we've learned this from this series in Leviticus together, let's remember that we live in a time that so often trivializes the holiness of God and the sinfulness or seriousness of sin. We just do. It is so easy for us to not understand that God is holy and that sin is a very big deal in relation to his holiness. So we need to remember that as we again approach a text like this in Leviticus. But then to contextualize ancient Israel for a moment. Old Testament Israel is where 
God himself is king. He is the lawgiver, the judge, the landowner, the commander of the armies. And all of these things were in his hands in a theocracy where God indeed, the divine sovereign, was king. And any idolatry was a serious act of treason against the divine king. And we know this, that treason, even today, even in the United States of America, is punishable by death. It is not a trivial reality. I want to quote from Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, a bit at length because I, I want us to get this right because I realize this is a sensitive place. But here's what he says about this. He says, Israel also believed that this covenantal relationship to the Lord was their very raison d'etre. That is, they existed as a nation only because of that relationship so that their survival and security were bound up with maintaining it. Therefore, any act that was a fundamental violation of that covenant relationship was a threat to the very security of the whole nation. An offense against God and the covenant relationship threatened to bring the wrath of the Lord upon the whole community. Such offenses were treated, therefore, as crimes and dealt with in an appropriately serious way. And he continues, these instances of capital punishment related to violations of the Ten Commandments are an eloquent testimony to the seriousness attached to the covenant and the importance of protecting it from violation that would endanger the whole community. The national interest was bound up with preventing and punishing crime against the covenant in a sufficiently serious manner. There was an explicit element of deterrence in such maximum penalties designed to preserve the life of the whole community by the combination of deterring people from committing such offenses and purging the community of those who did. What Christopher Wright is saying is this was a national security issue that threatened the very well-being and even existence of the nation as they knew life under Yahweh, their Lord. Jay Sklar, another Old Testament scholar, notes that such serious punishments were actually ultimately meant to protect Israel and therefore to protect Israel's vocation to the world. And in that sense, they can be seen, as he says, this means that the seriousness of these penalties was actually strongly humanitarian. The goal was to protect the people of God so that they could be a kingdom of priests to the nations, loving them, praying for them, and teaching them what it means to live in relationship with their creator. So I hope at least that helps us understand some of the logic and rationale behind such a severe penalty as death by stoning here in Leviticus 20 for worshiping Molech. So, of course, not hard to imagine that there were times when the community lost its nerve to carry out such an extreme punishment of the Lord upon an idolater like this. And the expression in verse 2 and verse 4, a people of the land, could be basically in the vernacular locals. Uh, and people in ancient Israel lived among their families and extended families. And so when we get down to verse 5, we, we actually see the word, I'll set my face against that man and against his clan, that word clan there might be better translated kindred. It could mean both immediate family or the extended, uh, uh, more extended family of the clan or the tribe with which the person is associated. But we, we get this. I mean, it'd be easy to overlook an offense like this for somebody that was in your clan or in your family. But what does God say? And look at with me at verses four and five. And if the people of the, of the land do it all close their eyes to that man, when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan 
and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him, in whoring after Molech. God wants his people to be sure that when they look the other way, he will not. That this kind of egregious sin is to be dealt with seriously and decisively. And that even to overlook the offense of the wrongdoer was then to share in the guilt of the wrongdoing. That is sobering again. The cost of idolatry is the loss of life. Now, we need to be clear in the New Covenant era that capital punishment is not a power given to the realm of the church. Ancient Israel was a theocracy ruled by their divine king and called to carry out directly his commands and judgments. But in the New Testament era, corporal punishment or capital punishment is delegated to the state in Romans 13.4. And I realize this would require a whole other set of sermons to address in any meaningful way, so I'm not going to dive into that right now. But just to acknowledge, the main point here is that this is no longer a power given to the people of God. And when the church has taken up the power of the sword, and it has done this at many points throughout its history, the gospel has experienced a major blight It has been a terrible thing for the people of God. Now, having said that, one of the things that we should take away from a sobering text like Leviticus 20 is the seriousness of sin. And even in the new covenant community, we are exhorted to consider sin as a serious matter, especially egregious acts of rebellion against the Lord. I would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a man who is committing egregious sexual immorality is being just permitted to be in the community. And the Apostle Paul writes and says, no, no, no. This needs to be dealt with decisively. And this man actually needs to experience the, the quote-unquote death of being cut off. The ex- what, I, what I would call the exclusionary acts of love from the community of God's people so that he would be put out of the community, lose his connection to the life of God through the people of God, so that his, his, his wickedness might be dealt with and purged from him, that he, his soul, might be saved. It's always with an intent of seeing this person come back to a place of life and wholeness out of the idolatry in which they're living. And Paul quotes at the end of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 5, Deuteronomy, a refrain from Deuteronomy, which is, purge the evil from among you. So even in the New Covenant community, we are to take sin seriously because of the holiness of God and the reality of sin. Now I get there are many questions to be addressed there. This is not a sermon on admonition or the discipline of the church in this way, but I at least wanted you to see the thread coming through from Leviticus even into the New Covenant people and to hear again that in our own lives and in our community, we are to take matters of sin seriously. And the reason is because sin is so costly. Idolatry is so costly. God is so passionately committed to our well-being and our flourishing that he is wholeheartedly set against false worship. So what's the antidote as we close? The antidote to false worship. It's true worship. And consider the difference between the objects of worship. This Canaanite deity, Molech, requires the sacrifice of one's sons or daughters to be in relation to the idol. Give what is most valuable to you. The one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do? 
in his great love for us, in his compassion toward us, in his desire to see us come to life. He doesn't demand from us our children, but he, in his own uh, sovereign plan, gives up his own son so that we might be cleansed, renewed, adopted, and brought into life in its fullness, into connection and relation with him. Molech demands our children. God gives his son that we might come to life. And it's the, this amazing love of God, the mercy of God, his kindness toward us in, in, in giving himself to us in the person of his son that is the fuel for genuine and true worship that enables an exclusive fidelity that God alone deserves. I'll never forget about 10 years ago, I was having coffee with a, a young woman from Iran and over in Back Bay in a coffee shop in Back Bay. And she'd grown up in a, obviously in a Muslim country, in a Muslim culture, and she was just beginning to learn about the Christian faith, and she'd never really heard about it before. And, and over coffee, I got a chance to share with her about the story of God and the true narrative of the history of redemption from creation to new creation. And when we got to the, the part about the climax of all that God has done at the cross, and I spoke to her about a God who would love us so much that he would enter into the world as a human being and take upon himself the penalty of our wrongdoing and go to the cross and be raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand and now reign and rule and call us into life. As I began to share these things for her, she had never encountered anything like this before, ever. Tears just began to stream down her face. To see a God who would love like that. She moved to California shortly after that, but then wrote me a couple of months later to tell me about her baptism at a church in California, that she had given her life to this God who had given his life for her. And that's the antidote to false worship, to idolatry. That's the only thing that can call us away from the idols that are in the culture all around us that woo us for our attention, for, for all that we have, that woo us to give what we have of value to them, to get nothing in return, but we continue to fall into that trap. The only antidote is the great love of God in Christ that sets aflame our hearts with genuine love for him. The great hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, written in 1707, ends with this verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God's amazing love for us is the antidote to false worship. So as we walk out of this place tonight, I long for us to grow in holiness and to grow in an exclusive attachment to the one true God as he has revealed himself in his word and in his son, Jesus Christ. And that which will allow us to grow into this more and more is a contemplation of his amazing act of love. And we will get to do that in a few minutes when we come to this table where we are given a visible sign and symbol of God's amazing sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't demand your children. He gives his own so that you might receive everything from him. Let's pray. How we ask, O oh God, that you would grow us in holiness. And we humble ourselves before you for the sake of our idol factory hearts. And we ask that you would purge them from us that we might be holy and wholly dedicated to you in exclusive fidelity in response to your amazing love. 
pray, Lord, that you would grow us as a people who are set aflame by your great love for us and who worship you and you alone. Have mercy on us, O God. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. In Jesus' name.